It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin. I take a probiotic. And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Critical discussions in this country continue to develop about election interference, Me Too, and gun violence. We break down the latest memos, indictments, controversies, and ideas in today's episode. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We hope that you'll check out our other podcast, our new little baby, The Nuanced Life, if you haven't already. Uh, last week on The Nuanced Life, we talked about masculinity, particularly as it relates to the gun debate. And this week, we'll be welcoming our first of several upcoming guests on The Nuanced Life, and we're really excited about that. Today, we're going to talk about several um, current events, the memo from the Democrats, um, Mueller's latest moves and some interesting developments at CPAC. And then we will be talking about all the amazing listener feedback we got on the gun debate. We kind of wanted to take an expanded conversation on that as opposed to just a Friday show in the main segment. And then at the end of the show, as usual, we'll be talking about what's on our minds outside of politics. 
Sarah, I'm going to try so hard not to go into like professor mode <laughs> because everything that I spent my week on my weekend reading about is complicated. Like it's getting intense with the election interference, the situation with the House Intelligence Oversight and the Mueller investigation. Have you looked at the Democratic memo yet? I looked at some coverage of it briefly, but I haven't read the memo itself. It does seem like the intensity of all things Russia and Mueller is growing for sure. Well, this is good because I haven't been reading coverage. I've kind of decided I'm only reading primary sources about all of this. So the fact that you have the coverage and I have the actual documents, I think this is a good combo. So just to set the scene here with this memo, because time passes in different ways for all of us, you might recall that the standing committee in the House that has oversight over the intelligence community is chaired by Devin Nunes. He put out a memo that was written by the staff members for the majority on the committee. So Republican staff members wrote a memo to Republican members of this committee. It's a bipartisan committee alleging that the Department of Justice omitted material information when they sought FISA warrants to surveil Carter Page. And they specifically talk in this four-page memo about the Steele dossier. And, and the memo makes it sound like the Steele dossier was the basis of obtaining a warrant and that the Department of Justice failed to tell the FISA court that the Steele dossier was opposition research paid for at least in part by the Clinton campaign. And then it has other criticisms of Steele and uh, some allusion to George Papadopoulos that didn't make a lot of sense. It makes more sense to me now after reading the Democratic memo. Um, and it also alludes to the two FBI agents that we'll just call Peter and Lisa, these poor people who have text messages between each other about the the upcoming election of Donald Trump. Okay, so the administration had to approve that memo going public, which it did following this whole hashtag campaign organized by Devin Nunes and members of the conservative media. And so that memo became public. It was declassified and is out there for anyone to see. When that occurred, the Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee said, wait a minute, this is completely misleading. It omits material information, and we need to be able to put out a response. And so they wrote a memo, and this memo was written by the Democrats on the committee. So it is from the actual members of Congress, not staff members. And it was written to the entire House of Representatives, not just to Democrats on the committee. It was dated January 29th. It is 10 pages long. It is heavily redacted. It refers in several places, and it has footnotes to the sources that it's citing to actual underlying classified information. Just on formatting, I will tell you, and I, you know, I'm a Republican reading these two documents. The Democrats memo is just so much more credible. Hmm. It looks more thoughtful. It looks well researched. It contains context that is missing from the Republican memo. Okay. This memo says, wait a second. The Republicans have characterized the Steele dossier as the entire reason for the the FBI to be investigating Russian election interference and the entire reason to surveil Carter Page. And the Democrats say, no, this investigation was opened in July of 2016, seven weeks before the FBI received the Steele dossier. Hmm. So there is other concerning evidence than the Steele dossier. It was just one portion of what the FBI was reviewing. 
Carter Page, in fact, had been interviewed by the FBI about his contacts with, quote, Russian intelligence in March of 2016, which is the same month that Trump made Carter Page an advisor to his campaign and way before the Steele dossier had popped up on anyone's radar. The Democrats say that the FBI had multiple bases for requesting and later renewing the warrant. It told the court about the Steele dossier because of particular meetings in that dossier that it said Page had had in Russia. It did not get into the salacious aspects of that dossier with the FISA court, according to the Democrats' memo. And it also says that the FBI in its FISA warrant or the Department of Justice in the FISA warrant detailed who Steele was, why his relationship with the FBI had been terminated after that occurred in the process of renewing the application. And it talked about the political motivation of those who hired him. This was a big deal in the Nunes memo. It said that the court didn't know that it was essentially reviewing opposition research. The Democrats say, yes, it did. And they quoted from the FISA application, which is a huge deal. If you recall from our primer on the FISA process, the government never has to produce a copy of that application to a criminal defendant. So the fact that the Democrats were able to declassify this information to quote directly from that application is a really big deal. It also says that the process by which Nunes went about releasing his memo, uh, let me think of a kind word for this. It was dysfunctional at best. He did not allow all the members of the committee to review the information that is critical to understanding the memo. He himself chose not to read the underlying intelligence. He relied on staff interpretation. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's just really terrible. So the, the memo also says that at the time of seeking the FISA warrant, the FBI had open inquiries into, and there it is, the number is redacted, some number of individuals associated with the Trump campaign, including George Papadopoulos. And here's why I think Papadopoulos makes the appearance in the Nunes memo. It sounds, and I am doing my best to read around lots of redactions in this memo, it sounds like something was disclosed to the FBI by or related to Papadopoulos that caused it to ramp up its investigation. Hmm. There is a footnote in this memo, and USA Today says that this was probably a mistake in the process of redaction, which is a concerning note about this entire process. There is a footnote that refers to open investigations into Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, Michael Flynn, George Papadopoulos, and Carter Page. The memo also points out that the four federal judges who issued the FISA warrant and its renewals were all appointed by Republicans, mm. two by George W. Bush, one by George H. W. Bush, one by Ronald Reagan. And it says that the basis of the warrant was probable cause to believe that Carter Page was, and this is a quote, knowingly assisting clandestine Russian intelligence activities in the United States. Woo. That's a big phrase, right? Yeah. And it says that the information in the Steele dossier that was included in the application was consistent with what the Department of Justice was already hearing from other sources. And this is a quote to closely tracked what other Russian contacts uh, were telling Papadopoulos. So the last note is that 
The memo basically characterizes the Nunez memo as a smear job. There is misleading discussion in it about a certain lawyer's role in the investigation. It says that the references to the Peter and Lisa text messages were gratuitous, which was basically our read at the time to Sarah. Um, and, and again, I just want to say that to me, none of this should be in public light. It is disturbing that it is. But if it's going to be in public light, this feels much more accurate and complete to me than what we got from the Republicans. I mean, it's because it's not as fun to say, well, the investigation wasn't based primarily on this dossier. Also, this dossier was substantiated. Parts of it were confirmed by outside sources. Oh, and also the judges definitely knew about the political motivations behind the dossier and they were all Republicans. Like, that's not going to fuel your hashtag release the memo campaign. It's so much better. I mean, like, they just simplified it at the cost of the facts. And so when some of the facts came out, it just makes them look dumb. Sorry. That's not very nuanced. I think the reason that the president and his friends at Fox are trying to say that this memo is confirmation of the first memo is that the Democrats on the committee do not rebut the contention that the Department of Justice excluded the precise people who wrote the checks to pay for the Steele dossier. Mm. I'm not sure that federal judges need those dots to be connected to understand what opposition research is, though. Right. So I'm look, all of this to me is is kind of a sideshow created by the Republicans. At the time that Nunes released his memo, you, Sarah, said, I wish the Democrats would just not would not even like dignify it with a response. And I think that there's truth in that, especially when you see all the facts. I mean, this is. Such a side note to the investigation. It's important, but it isn't really appropriate for public consumption. However, Can't I you think see? this was necessary in yeah. light of what Nunez did. You got to know, knowing like the sort of the full picture, how incredibly furious the Democrats on that committee must have been knowing what they yes. knew the whole time. Oh, my God. I can't even begin to imagine how mad they all were. Well, and how infuriating this has to be for the law enforcement officials involved in this process. And that's what I think is good about having a more complete picture out there in public consumption. You can see, no, people were trying to do their jobs. This this wasn't a witch hunt. I mean, and that's the thing. That's like I wonder about Bob Mueller. Is he just like the Zen master of all Zen master or is his entire intestines riddled with ulcers? Like, I'm not sure I can tell. Speaking of Bob Mueller, yeah, he's busy. He's busy. If he is riddled with ulcers, it is not affecting his capacity for working. Then that makes me think he's a Zen master. I prefer Zen master. I think that's probably more accurate. You would have to be pretty collected to do what he's doing right now. So I want to say again, I'm not a journalist. I'm not investigating anything. I am a humble recovering lawyer. (laughs) And everything I'm about to tell you has come only from the underlying documents that are on the special counsel's website, which can be seen by anyone in the world. So I have struggled with journalists analysis of what's going on. So I'm just ignoring it now and reading only what the special counsel's office files. Oh, I was going to say that. I think that the, the, the coverage that I read is not far off from what you said, basically. Oh, good. Of the memo? Yeah, that it was just like it didn't it didn't have any other block, block shells. It gave us more perspective and really undermined this salacious narrative that the Republicans were pushing. Well, good. I'm glad that we're all consistent on that. 
Okay, quick review of where we are with the Mueller investigation. George Papadopoulos pled guilty to lying to the FBI about meeting with Russians. Michael Flynn pled guilty to lying to the FBI about meetings with Russians. Don't lie to the FBI, y'all. Seriously. Don't lie to the FBI. (sighs) Richard Pinedo pled guilty to identity fraud. We're pretty sure that he sold dates of birth and social security numbers to Russians. The grand jury has issued an indictment against 13 Russian individuals and three Russian entities for conspiracy to defraud the United States, wire fraud, bank fraud, aggravated identity theft, all related to interfering with U.S. elections and political processes. Very early in the Mueller investigation, there was an indictment issued um, against Paul Manafort and Rick Gates. I'm going to come back to that in a second because we now have a superseding indictment against Manafort and a guilty plea from Gates. But there is this very interesting character who is new to our story named Alex <laughs> Vanderswan. And on February 20th, Alex pled guilty to lying to the FBI. So I'm going to try not to detour too much, but I'm going to tell you that I am fascinated by a lot of what is going on in this story, so much so that I'm going to start talking about it on Patreon. So if you want to become a supporter of Pantsuit Politics and get a deeper dive into Ukraine and some very interesting Ukrainian history, you can join me over there. The specials count, the special counsel's office had open investigations into Paul Manafort and Rick Gates for lots of things, including acting as agents for foreign governments without registering, which is illegal. A piece of this investigation involved a project in which Manafort and Gates worked for the Ministry of Justice in Ukraine. So Ukraine has this um, interesting story going on about the first woman prime minister of Ukraine, Yulia Tymoshenko. Hmm. After she served in office, she was convicted of embezzlement and abuse of power and imprisoned. And the United States and the European Union and lots of other nations viewed her imprisonment as politically motivated. So Manafort and Gates are working as lobbyists and PR folks for the Ukraine Ministry of Justice. A law firm in London wrote a report about Yulia Tymoshenko's trial. And that report got to Gates and Manafort for distribution to U.S. media. Hmm. Okay. Alex, our new individual who's pled guilty our new friend. to lying our to new the friend. FBI, our new friend Alex, was a lawyer at the firm in London that wrote that report about the Timonshenko trial. Hmm. And he was interviewed in November of 2017, November 3rd, in fact, of 2017, by the special counsel's office. And he lied about three important things. The first thing is that Alex said he had not talked to Rick Gates since August of 2016, and that was just an innocuous text message. But actually, he had extensive contacts with Gates and someone in the Ukraine that the indictment refers to as Person A about the report. Mm. Rick Gates sent Alex a copy of a preliminary criminal complaint that had been filed in Ukraine. And Alex contacted person A in Ukraine to explain, and they had this conversation in Russian, the indictment notes, that Manafort, the law firm that had prepared the report, Alex's firm, 
and a former Ukrainian minister of justice all might be criminally charged in Ukraine. Whoa. Then Alex called a partner in his law firm to talk about this, and then he called Gates to talk about this. And Alex recorded all of those calls, and he made notes about all of those calls. And then he told the special counsel that none of those calls had happened. I don't understand. What would Manafort be criminally charged in the Ukraine for? I do not know. The special counsel also had requested documents from the law firm that wrote this report about the Timonshenko trial. And Alex knew that those documents had been requested. And instead of turning them over, Alex deleted documents. He deleted things and he withheld things that had been requested. Bad Alex. And it included one of the things that he withheld included an email written by Alex in Russian to person A about the two of them needing to chat using an encrypted application. Oh, Lord. Alex also said that he had a very limited role in rolling out the Timonshenko report, but actually, Alex gave an advanced copy of that report to a PR firm, which had not been authorized by his law firm or the client, and he gave Rick Gates talking points about the report to use in ways that were favorable to the Ukraine Minister of Justice. Okay, so For the, example, re- the report is the one that says that her getting kicked out and criminally charged was politically motivated. Well, the the report, I think, and I haven't seen the report, but the way I'm reading all of this is that this is a PR strategy to make the Ukraine Ministry of Justice look better. And so it might be a counter argument to her trial as politically motivated. Oh, OK. Because but who are Manafort and all of them working for it? The Manafort Ukraine and court- Gates are working for the Minist- Ukraine Minister, Minister of, of Justice. Justice. OK. Yes. So I think that this report is probably a defense of of the government's actions against Timonshenko. Which maybe Bec- they were going to be charged because they knew more about what really happened in order to get I, to a defense. I have no idea. Yeah. This is Sarah no Plain speculating. Beth won't do this, but I'll speculate. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't know. But one of the things that that is mentioned in the indictment is that Alex told Gates that a talking point about the report is to look beyond the descriptions of procedural problems in the trial and focus on the weakness of her defense. Mm-hmm. OK, so Alex has lied about three things and now he has pled guilty to lying. And the court will sentence Alex and that will move forward. OK. February 22nd, two days later, the grand jury issued superseding indictments against Paul Manafort and Rick Gates pled guilty to conspiracy against the United States. Whoa. Okay, here's what Gates did. Gates helped Manafort bring millions of dollars, like 75 millions of dollars into the United States without paying taxes on the money. He helped hide money in foreign accounts. He told Manafort's accountant that certain funds were loans when they weren't to avoid paying income taxes. Gates helped lie to the Department of Justice about activities that Manafort and Gates and their various firms were doing on behalf of Ukraine. He helped other people lobby for Ukraine without registering. He lied about what he knew about a meeting that Manafort and another lobbyist and a member of Congress, which has been reported to be uh, California Republican Dana Rohrabacher, had that involved a discussion of Ukraine. So Gates says, yes, I did all of these things. I'm pleading guilty. Manafort has not pled guilty. So he has a superseding indictment against him now 
for acting as a lobbyist for the Ukrainian president and parties in the Ukraine without registering. He generated a boatload of money in the process, and this indictment has even longer lists of financial transactions than the initial indictment did. He didn't register or disclose his lobbying efforts properly, and he hid money to avoid paying taxes. So the charges against Manafort now are conspiracy against the United States, conspiracy to launder money, He's acted as an unregistered agent of a foreign principal. He's made false and misleading statements to the Foreign Agents Registration Unit. He's made false statements to the government. And the government is seeking forfeiture of assets, including lots of real estate connected to illegal activity, meaning the government of the United States would like to own all of the things that Paul Manafort has enjoyed as a result of his lobbying work. Him going to jail. So that is where we are in the investigation. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, I heard a lot about Ukraine and not about Russia. And that's true. Um, the Russian activity is described in the indictment that we talked about in our last full episode. I don't know whether and how dots connect here. And I don't want to speculate about that in any way. Like I said before, I do not have like a web on the the wall of my bedroom trying to map this out. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm just trying to keep up with what the special counsel is doing and tell you about it in as neutral a way as possible as things move forward. Let me tell you, though, Robert Mueller has a web somewhere. This is not going to be a I didn't find anything, Sitch. I mean, we're, the whole time you're talking about these guys, I just keep thinking the $75 million and all that. Like, that was his vice chairman of his dang campaign. These were not low players in the Trump campaign. It's just crazy. It is crazy. And it reads as, as I read all of these documents, it feels like fiction. Yeah. You know, and fiction that's a stretch. But I really want to give more context to everything that happened in Ukraine and sort of the connections between Ukraine and Russia. And that's what I'm going to do on our Patreon page in kind of a short series of videos. I think I'm still mulling that over. If you have specific questions or ideas about that, let me know. So the other thing we wanted to talk about before we move on to our main segment is CPAC. CPAC and all the excitement there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What does CPAC stand for? I don't even know. Conservative Political Action Conference. So it's like a little conservative expo where, in theory, all the top conservative thinkers come and have robust discussions about conservative politics. But I think this year it was just a we love Trump situation and has been in past years, I think. Well, at at one point when he was running for president, Trump didn't go to CPAC because CPAC was not on the Trump train. We should go to CPAC one year. I bet it would be interesting. Do you think they would let us come to CPAC? No, I don't know. I think that would be interesting. Well, it might be interesting. It might be devastating. I don't know. Um, The thing that is getting lots of headlines this year is that there was a panel of conservative women talking about the Me Too movement. Us too, Beth. Us too. I have lots of feelings about that in general. And Mona Charon, who writes for National Review, among other things, was honest about mm-hmm. conservative hypocrisy. She described the reality sex, of the conservative movement with relationships to Me Too with, with, with accuracy, and people did not take well to it. Right. She, I mean, basically what Mona Charon did was say words that are true <laughs> and have, and be booed for that. So she said that they were, the question was kind of what makes your blood boil right now? Because 
I don't know why, but as conservatives, we just like to be pissed off all the time. Well, it was this what, really yeah, what is your blood me. boil about the feminist movement? That was the right. question. And so she took the opportunity to say, I think it's a problem that people in the White House brag about sexual harassment and, and we look the other way. Affairs. We look the other way because there is an R beside the name. Mm-hmm. And I think it's wrong that this party was about to endorse Roy Moore. It did endorse, endorse yeah. Roy Moore, who was credibly accused of child sexual abuse. And she was booed. And then she went on to criticize CPAC for inviting a member of the Le Pen family from France. She said that it was a disgrace, that they stood for racism. And again, she just said true things and true things that were critical of her own party. And there were some applause in the room, but mostly loud booing. And after she left the stage, she says that security for CPAC was genuinely concerned about her safety and escorted her out of the building. That's bananas. So she was on, um, I think it was the daily this morning. I was listening to an interview with her and she said, she's a really great phrase. She said, she called it civic hygiene. She's like, I know people are going to say, well, they let Bill Clinton get, get away with it. And, um, so what's the difference? And she's like, it's, it's, we owe ourselves the civic hygiene, this idea that like, well, it doesn't matter what the other side does. We're going, that's not that our, our moral North star is not set by the worst behavior of the other side. What's right is what's right. And we should stick to that no matter how badly the other side behaves. And my favorite thing is she described an exchange on Twitter where somebody was like, well, they just got rid of Al Franken so they could take the moral high ground. And she was like, yes. And like, Shouldn't you want the moral high ground? <laughs> Why is that a bad thing? That seems like an admirable thing to do. I, I thought she was very fair and honest and just that it was just about telling the truth and being honest and that she felt like that every time somebody speaks the truth to power like that or speaks the truth to um, the sort of the conventional wisdom that is empowering for other people. I just read a really great book this weekend called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. Um, Brene Brown talked about Marcus Borg and her speech, so I wanted to read some works by him. And he talks about like how so much of what Jesus did was challenging the conservative or the conventional wisdom and how hard that is and how brave you have to be to say, I know this is the message we're all adopting, but I don't think it's right. And I think she did that and good for her. I agree. When I read her line that she finds it encouraging when people simply speak the truth, I thought, me too. Like mm-hmm. that, that is so refreshing to me. I want to say that I think the Wait, panel- pause. What a great way to put that. Of course, me too. And of course, that's what the movement is actually about to your previous concerns about the quote, quote us too. Me too well, is right. just people speaking their truth. That's exactly where I was going. Some of this panel was intended to push back against Me Too on the basis of the belief that we should be careful in describing what's happened and not lump all bad conduct in one bucket. And I want to say, as a conservative woman, I don't think that's what anyone is trying to do. I don't know a woman who wants people to believe that catcalling is the same as sexual harassment in the workplace is the same as rape. Mm -hmm. I don't know anyone who's saying these are all the same things. What I know is that women across the country are saying we're done with all of them now. Mm -hmm. And they all lead to one another and are related in some ways, but they are separate. And the way we want to hold people accountable for them is distinct. 
I feel like we're fighting about things that don't really exist. Because and you know why? Of, we want a false binary. We right. want to we want to say this is exactly what the feminist movement is and this is what the left is or this is what the right is so that we can then knock it down really easily as opposed to saying, I don't know, there's people on both sides saying this, saying both. I mean, that's not a fun panel. It's not a fun panel to say there are lots of feminists that say we shouldn't lump all these in and there are lots of feminists that think like I, I even disagreed with her point, this idea that every feminist is represented by Sheryl Sandberg and lean in. I stayed home too, lady, and I'm still a feminist. So I don't know. I just, I know it, it's, it's fun for us all to create these, these caricatures so we can knock them down, but it's so dumb. I mean, there is an interesting t- discussion to have, and, and we're going to have it with a guest in a couple of weeks about feminism and the pro-life movement and then, and the, the inclusivity of feminism in general. That's an interesting topic to talk about. To me, it is not interesting to sort of relive the mommy wars and to characterize. There's a generational component to this too, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think that the, I think women at different, in different generations have received different cultural messages about what's expected of them. And so does being a feminist mean the same thing to me at 37 as it did at 20? No. And it probably won't mean the same thing at 50 and all of that's fine. I, I think that if you and I sat down with Mona Charon, we would find more to agree about than to disagree about. Definitely. And I think that's that's true broadly. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that's true broadly within the Me Too movement. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm thrilled that she said what she said and that it is being covered and that people are recognizing that there are just some fundamental things that we should all get behind. Uh, Benjamin Witt has referred to this on Twitter this weekend as being pre-democracy. You know, things that are just, that are just bigger and more fundamental than politics that we should rally around. And I think that's great. I hate that this happened in the context of a discussion about Me Too, but to me, creates a a false binary. Okay. Well, I think that's a great spot to end on. Moving on, Beth, who do you want to compliment from the other side this week? I read this article in Politico about the governors of uh, Democratic governors who are organizing themselves. There are only 16 governors who are Democrats right now, organizing themselves around common ground where they oppose the Trump administration. Things like issues of gun violence, climate change, infrastructure. And while I might not be in lockstep with them on every one of those things, I am very supportive of this kind of renewed interest in federalism. Hmm. And I think that a lot of what they're doing is appropriate to do on the state level and wouldn't be appropriate to do at the federal level. And I know we take some heat for looking for bright sides of the Trump administration, and I want to be clear and say, in my perfect world, there would not be a Trump administration. Okay, so it's not like I'm saying, oh, thank goodness we have this to make good things happen. But I am saying, if we are going to endure this, and we are, I am glad that it is changing some interests and ways people behave in in ways that are constructive. And so I think good for these governors and good for them collaborating with each other. I think that's a wonderful part of being a United States. And I just thought all in all, it was a great, a great article and some great activity that's taking place. I'm glad you brought up that criticism. I got something to say about that. Um, 
I just want to say that I understand that there are people who believe that Donald Trump is the second coming of Hitler, that everything he does is terrible, that he is treacherous and toxic and needs to go immediately. And they are angry, frustrated, disagree with anything that is short of that level of intense um, hatred towards him. That's fine. You do you. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I don't think that that is the appropriate approach for everybody. I don't believe that. Um, and I am not going to live in a state of all out war with Donald Trump in my head for the next three years, hopefully less. I'm just not going to do that. I'm sorry. If that, if you, if that makes me weak or if that means I'm naive or I'm just looking for silver linings, but fine. That's fine. Um, but you know, I know what I see as my own reality. I know what's important for my own mental health. And I'm just not going to do that. I'm just not going to do it. And I'm not going to apologize for not doing it either. I agree. My compliment the other side is Rick Scott. I see you, buddy. I just want to say I see you. I see you doing things that I know are hard for you, and you're going to get a lot of blowback. I appreciate the legislation he's put forward, particularly the age limits on the purchase of assault weapons, which the NRA is vehemently opposed to. And I think he's doing the right thing. Not always a fan of Rick Scott, but I see you, buddy. Keep up the good work. Well, we're going to talk more about that topic in detail when we come back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. 
Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special. And they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So we wanted to spend a lot of time talking about the ongoing gun conversation happening in this country. Um, We sort of talked about it from an emotional level, but there was just so much detail and a lot of really interesting feedback from our listeners that we wanted to dive into that as well. One of the most interesting things um, I read that I wanted to talk about was Politico gave sort of a off the record. This is what we're hearing from Republicans at the beginning of the conversation. And it says, many Republicans feel like they go home to their safely red district and interact with constituents who are gun-toting NRA members, many of whom show up to barbecue, fundraisers, and political events carrying a weapon. Multiple Republicans told us that they held events at high-end shooting ranges. Forget the money that the NRA gives. It's a relatively inconsequential compared to other industries, and it's a lazy explanation for the position that many Republicans hold. But many GOP voters exist in a media environment where they read the NRA's magazines, pay attention to their scorecards, come election time, and wonder if the long arm of the U.S. government will come get their guns. Most Republicans exist in a climate in which their only political fear is a primary challenger on the right. To these Republicans, national polls mean squat. Getting on the wrong side of the gun issue would be going soft on guns. That's the way to lose a primary election. I mean, I think that that is such a succinct way to summarize their political reality. But what I think that misses is that, yeah, maybe the money the NRA gives to political candidates themselves is not hugely consequential in the realm of the amount of money other industries give. But the money they spend scaring the crap out of all these people in their districts is why they're so scared to do anything, because they're afraid they'll get primary. They The NRA spends so much money communicating with their members and building these narratives and scaring people and telling them they're going to come get your guns that, I mean, I just don't think that can be underestimated. I was very interested in a piece that David French wrote about the CNN town hall that we talked about last time. David French is a writer for National Review, someone that I frequently find a a lot of space for agreement with. He was floated as a presidential candidate by Bill Kristol for about two seconds um, before Evan McMullen jumped into the race. So I think he's a good guy. I think this piece was very well-intentioned. And it, it made the point that People watched the CNN town hall, gun owners watched it and felt personally attacked 
by the tone from the students in the audience. Okay. That to me is the NRA's message. Mm -hmm. I felt like that characterization is what the NRA has been pushing. And that's why it's been so effective. Not even money, but convincing people that any time you hear any discussion about restricting gun ownership, it means they hate you, they hate your way of life, and they're yeah. coming for their guns. And I do not see that. Sitting here in a very red part of a very red state, people are capable of complexity yeah. and empathy. People understand what grieving parents are going through. They can't imagine burying their high school children. And they know that the emotion that they saw is not about wanting to take everybody's guns away or hating people for hunting or shooting for sport. They understand that there is emotion here and a desire to solve a problem. And I think that the NRA's biggest influence in our country is trying to take away that empathy and that complexity. And I think that's what the students have done such a good job is just making it impossible to turn away. I have to believe that the personal emotional experience, particularly of the Florida state legislators and Rick Scott, is part of the reason that this legislation is moving forward. And I also believe that that is what's happening with Donald Trump right now. The reporting from Political this morning is that he is pushing very hard behind the scenes for gun legislation, that he's told members of Congress he wants legislation this week, which is unrealistic, but that he is just super fired up about it. And I think, honestly, it's not about polling and it's not about, I mean, you just have to make it so difficult that the political reality becomes the second priority. That the reality of looking these families in the face and listening to that man say he has to go visit his daughter in the cemetery is so impactful that people don't feel like they have any other choice but to do something. And I think that's what's happening right now. And I think that, you know, I hope that it goes to positive legislative experience. You know, as as much as I agree with some of the legislation, like I'm not going to be happy with just banning bump stocks. I also think um, I also wanted to point out something I read that was really interesting. You know, several of our le- our listeners and I hear this argument a lot as as we consider a ban on assault, semi assault, assault weapons ban, including like semi automatic weapons, is the idea that the assault ban didn't reduce the crime rate. Which I understand. I understand that argument and I understand the truth of that argument and the reality of that and the statistics. But I read a really great article in the Washington Post that I'll put in the show notes that said, right, but that's not the point. That was not the point of the assault weapons ban. <laughs> the point of the assault weapons ban was not to overall reduce the crime rate or to reduce, reduce um, gun violence, but was to reduce the impact of mass shooting events to reduce the number of people, the death toll. And in that aspect, it did work. And now if you want to be upfront with me and say, those are not enough lives to reduce the, my right to access that kind of weapons. That's fine. We can talk about that, but um, it did reduce the death toll. And I think we need to be honest about when we talk about reductions, what, you know, what numbers we're talking about. I don't need huge, reductions in the the violent crime rate to justify some of this legislation to me. Now, maybe you do, but I don't. And so, um, I mean, I think that's 
I hope that we continue to talk about that sort of ban. And there's also been just while we're talking about the legislative sort of reality of the situation right now, there's also been talks apparently behind the scenes about um, the power to reclaim guns in certain circumstances um, with domestic violence um, convictions or mental illness that the police could come and re- reclaim guns for, you know, 21 days and maybe up to three times. I, th- I hope that gets somewhere. I think that would be um, really helpful. It would give law enforcement some additional tools to protect people. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting. I think they're, you're going to see something. I don't know exactly how how intense the legislation will be, but it doesn't look as if this is going anywhere with regards to Congress. Just to be clear, none of the things that, that Congress is talking about or that you just talked about involves undermining people's right to keep and bear arms. Mm-hmm. It is all just saying we want to make sure that when you do that, you're not going to hurt yourself or somebody else. That's it. Yep. And I think that there has been some good reporting over the last couple of weeks about the mental health component of this and about how when you say you want the mental health community to solve this problem, you are actually talking about a greater violation of liberty than making someone wait a little bit longer to buy a gun. Yeah, that's so interesting. Why is it like, how dare you even consider taking or not even taking? reducing the type of weapons I have access to, but definitely lock people up and deprive them of their personal liberty. Right. You can't start to regulate my guns, but you can regulate my mind. I mean, I think this is a really dangerous conversation that we're having about mental health right now. I will say this. I do think that there is a conversation to be had about mental health facilities. I do think that we have a terrible history in our country of locking people up for terrible reasons and depriving them of their liberty based on, quote unquote, mental health um, circumstances. But there is a part of me that believes that we overcorrected. And now there are families who desperately need help and resources in dealing with the mentally ill in their own families and especially acute situations of mental illness, and they don't have proper resources. So I'm not saying that that, you know, you know, we sort of shut down every institution and a lot of people just found themselves into ways in their own way into prison, which is not a solution. And so, you know, I, I think there is a role for mental health facilities. I think there is a role for um, when people are a danger to themselves or others. And I think sometimes those laws are too hard to trigger. There was a really good um book that came out several years ago about a father and his journey with his son once he was over 21 who had acute mental illness and his his sort of testimony of how he just didn't have any resources. He didn't have any help. He didn't have any way to protect his son. Um, and I think that that is a conversation to be had. But like, let's not let's not make that. But that has to be a very careful line drawn and a very careful conversation, not just lock, put the mad guys in mental institutions and moving on. Well, and the the point that I think is starting to come out in a variety of forms of journalism is that most mass shooters are not mentally ill. Mm-hmm. That's not what we're talking about. They are angry. Mm-hmm. They are perhaps devoid of empathy at a certain point. Maybe they're having some kind of break with values or reality even, but they aren't suffering from a diagnosed mental illness. 
And so we're really talking about different things here. And that's why I think it's important to go back to all of this is a balancing of the interest, the balance of your right, just like we balance the interest around free speech. And the First Amendment says we can make no law abridging the right to free speech, but we have tons of laws Mm -hmm. abridging the right to free speech to make sure that all of the other rights that we have are balanced around it. And so the Second Amendment to me is not different. I'm not saying I don't want you to own a gun. I I don't really as a cultural (laughs) matter, but as a legal matter, go ahead. Yes, that is your right. And I'm not here to take it away from you. I'm just saying I want that process of you acquiring your weapon to be a thoughtful one that prevents guns, as the NRA spokeswoman says she wants, from getting in the hands of people who will do harm to others. Mm. So as we discuss the sort of the pragmatic political reality facing our members of Congress, Congress and many state legislators as they consider this legislation, Rob wrote us from Australia and shared some really great um, nuanced perspective about um, Australia's history with gun legislation. He says, firstly, the prime minister who passed the now famous gun legislation and buyback scheme in the 1990s was the leader of a conservative coalition government consisting of the National Party, a conservative rural party, which holds majorities akin to Southern Republicans, and the Liberal Party, conservative urban-based party. There is a very famous photo of PM John Howard standing in front of a rally of gun enthusiasts and farmers telling them that he was taking their guns with a distinct outline of a bulletproof vest beneath his jacket. The degree of political capital he exerted in dragging his party into reforms, despite the public approving largely of changes he was making, could easily have led to his removal from office. Australia didn't just wake up one morning with laws and no violence. It was a process in which those on the right had to be convinced to reassess the roles of weapon in their li- weapons in their lives. Still today, two decades after the laws came into effect, I still have young conservative friends who bemoan the loss of access to guns. This leads into my second observation, that this problem is on the one hand a dis- discussion of access, but on the other, a process of self-realization that a cultural shift needs to occur. I've been alluding to this above, but I think this is the biggest unrealized element of the discussion on Australia's gun laws is that the event itself did not create the change, but rather the combination of changing public opinion, a legislative process which acted swiftly, and a prime minister who pursued change with almost reckless disregard for personal safety, coalition unity, or his future political leadership. I think that's such an important point. And I really think that culturally, we are going to change how we feel about guns. And Mm -hmm. there are two directions that that cultural change could go. I think that if we start to pass legislation that requires a vetting process and training and licensure and renewal and registration of guns, that gun ownership could be held in esteem in some way, right? Mm -hmm. That people who own guns know how to use them, have demonstrated that ability, that sort of respect the weapon that you hear from a lot of gun owners. I think that that, I think that could happen. I think the other alternative is that we start to view guns like cigarettes and we work to restrict their prevalence in society. We work to restrict their their portrayal in the media, you know, they become symbolic of crime only. Mm -hmm. And we tax them to death to pay for security measures to protect all of us from them. And I think those are our options right now. And so as we approach, what are we going to do about the problems that we're having? We should be thoughtful about the culture that will trail that legislation. One of my 
favorite things about Moms Demand Action. Also, side note, all of you sending me in your messages that you went to your first Moms Demand Action meeting, keep them coming. They're giving me life. It's so awesome. And what I really love about that organization is that it feels like it is working simultaneously towards cultural change with regards to guns and legislative action. And that's what I love about it. It feels like you know, awareness is such a key part of what we do in the organization and getting out there and saying guns need to be respected, guns need to be held in safe places, and just pushing back on the idea that, like, anybody can have any gun they want, carry it however they want, keep as many as they want. Um, that's what I think is so positive and so powerful because I do think we need both. And I do think um, 50 years from now we will look back at Sandy Hook and we will look back at Parkland and we will say – Somebody hopefully will be writing to about the United States like Rob is writing about Australia and that this is where the change started happening and this is where the cultural change started to shift. I really – I believe that and I, I, um, I just hope to live to see it. So I think we should talk about schools specifically because we've talked a little bit about the – the political reality and the legislative aspect, there is a huge conversation going on in this country right now. And one of our listeners felt that I was flippant about talking about arming teachers. And I will tell you that flippant is the last thing I ever desire to be. And I struggle to have a serious conversation about the idea that giving teachers on the regular weapons in their classrooms makes any sense at all. I really have a hard time discussing that. So we had a listener, Liz, write into us. We put this in our email and we got really great feedback from it. So we're going to share her email um, in full right now on the podcast. We think it's so important. She said, in the aftermath of the school shooting in Florida, I've observed a particular narrative that has really gotten under my skin as a teacher. The murdered children are victims, but the dead, teacher, the dead teachers are heroes. They took a bullet for their kids. I don't in any way wish to minimize anyone's death, nor do I wish to criticize these moving tributes, but it's time someone told the truth about this heroic narrative. Teachers being murdered in schools by armed terrorists while protecting their students is not heroism. It is a horror. We revere police officers and our military because they affirmatively choose that life that most of us do not have the courage to do. Their job is emotionally draining and takes a psychological toll because of the risk to their lives that their jobs pose. Their marriages are tested and their families live with the stress that they may not come home at the end of the day. It takes a special kind of person to be willing to sacrifice themselves to protect the innocent. Every community needs warriors and protectors, and I'm incredibly grateful to those people who serve in those roles. I am not that person. I am not a police officer. I did not enlist in the military. I am a teacher. I did not choose a career where I am asked to sacrifice myself to protect the innocent. I chose to teach because I love children, I love learning, and I love the school environment. I chose a career that allowed me to balance my family and my job. I am not a warrior. I am an educator, a nurturer, and carer. Ever since the Columbine shooting, every time I enter a classroom, I assess where and how I would hide the children. I consider the fastest way to evacuate. Sometimes I look at the faces of the children I teach, and I see the children of Sandy Hook. This has taken a toll on me as I regularly experience fight or flight. I regularly consider the possibility of being murdered or witnessing the murder of children while on the job, and I did not in any way ask for this when I became a teacher. I am a teacher, not a warrior. I'm going to be totally honest and real here. I do not want to take a bullet for anyone except my own family. I don't want to die at my job. I am not a hero and have no desire to be one, and I don't think I should be expected to do so. I just want to go to school and be a kind adult in the lives of children and then go home to my own children and husband. My elected official should protect me and decide that being a human shield to protect children against armed men is not what we want for teachers, children, or our communities. 
So let me be clear. If I die in a school shooting, I am not a hero. I am a victim. I am a victim of greed and lies and inaction. Do not lionize me or any actions that I took in service of protecting the children in my care. I did not willingly take a bullet for my students, but because I had no other choice and because I was failed by powerful people who could have saved my life and the lives of the kids in my classroom. If I die in a school shooting protecting the children in my classroom, I have done it unwillingly and at the hands of others. I love children and I love teaching, but I don't want to die on the job. I desperately want to come home to my family every day. I did not choose this. Murdered teachers do not willingly sacrifice their lives, and let's stop acting like they do because it makes us feel marginally better to have heroes among the horror. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once-daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your 
problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. It's hard to know how to better frame that than she did. And I think about my sister and my brother-in-law who teach every single day, uh, my mother who taught every single day. And that's right. The people who choose these careers are not signing up for this. Some of the people who sign up to be warriors do not act as warriors in these situations because they're terrifying. Mm -hmm. There's so much discussion going on about what happened in Parkland right now. And my husband asked me this morning what I thought about it. And I said, you know, Chad, I don't know what to say other than human beings react to trauma differently. And I am sad that this happened. I think it probably means these people can't do these jobs anymore. But is it not an illustration of how terrifying this Mm -hmm. is? And part of what bothers me about the discussion that teachers ought to be able to volunteer to conceal carry in schools is that we are assuming that someone who's taken a concealed carry course is then capable of converting that into action in the most terrifying situation we can possibly imagine. And that is a tall ask of police officers and a tall ask of our military. And we ask it every day and those people show up and they do it for us. But that is an impossible ask, I think think of people who studied art and literature and science and math and want to spend their days explaining those concepts to our children. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to live in a country where we say that our best teachers are the teachers who are willing to stand a post and guard those kids. That is not what I want the standard to be for our teachers. And the irony is that we already ask so much of them. We already ask them to do so much more than just teach. We ask them to be social workers. We ask them to be basically parents to many children. We ask them to be sort of, you know, academic researchers and and understand the complexities of every child and how that applies to testing and our state level of skill. I mean, we just... We There are so many stakeholders at the table in public education, and teachers have to negotiate all that. They have to negotiate the kids and the parents and the administrators, and it's tough. I have a, I come from a family full of educators. It's a tough gig, and, you know, in Kentucky right now, they're having to face the increased stress of maybe losing their pensions. Like, why would we add something else to these people? Why? I read, Leslie wrote into us, and I think this is a really good point. She said, I would also like it noted that the specific a- issue of giving teachers weapons aside, Trump's idea that teachers are a plentiful and cheap resource is insulting to educators across the country. That's the thing. Like, they're not here to just fill whatever role we need that our current society feels is lacking. They're not, that's not who they are. That's their human beings and complex human beings with their own personal lives and needs. They don't even get paid that much. Oh, it's just ridiculous. Well, and we complain constantly about the quality of education in the United States. It is not going to increase if we turn our teachers into security guards. It's not. And so I think that discussion, I, I, I just struggle to take the idea seriously. I can't believe that we're having this discussion. Now, what am I willing to do? The idea of having TSA style security at the entrance of every school and making sure there's only one way into every school. I hate that we have to do that. That is something I do hate. I will say that. I don't hate that you have your gun. I don't hate that you enjoy shooting it. I hate the idea that we would have to put our children through that sort of security every day. And I'm willing to do it. I'm here. Let's do it. 
if that's what we need to do to stop this from being in the news every single month to, to save even one life. If even one child doesn't die because we have everybody go through a metal detector on their way into school, then let's do it. Sign me up. So stressful though. Can you imagine doing that every single day? I think it's horrible. As a five-year-old? I think it is not the kind of country that I want to live in, but if we need to make that happen to show some progress and some compromise, and like I said, if it saves even one precious child or teacher's life, then I'm here for it. I do want to tax ammunition to pay for that. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think we should just, you know, I was talking to a friend who has a, you know, extensive history with firearms. I think some of the most interesting conversations I've had recently about gun control come from people who are very, very, very comfortable with guns. And he said, you know, look, it's too late for the assault weapons ban. We all, anybody who knows anything about guns knows that there are so many out there already. He's like, now, you could put a ban in place and like 30 years from now, it'll start to help because they're going to start breaking and people can't replace them. He's like, but what we really need to do is just restrict the heck out of ammunition. It's an easier thing to do. It's an easier way to tackle the problem. And that leads us to a, a, interest, a list of suggestions that Michael sent us. Um, he talked in detail about a lesson his father taught him when he was growing up with guns, which is you own every bullet. And he said, so by the same token, buying a weapon comes with a certain responsibility. In my ideal world, the only folks that should own a weapon are those that have passed a tough concealed carry course, which requires knowing national gun laws, shooting proficiency with qualifying weapon, and a thorough background check. Pass a proficiency test for every weapon they buy, own a safe or locking mechanism to safely store their weapons. Their forces comes, this forces some common sense laws around gun ownership. I'm fine with putting them in a major taking the concealed carry license at 18 because you can go to war for your country and smoke at 18. I'm willing to, I would rather raise the age for military service and smoking, but I get your point. Here's something I don't understand. Why does the NRA, like, can we just, can we get, can we include in the gun lobby safe makers? Like, if you start requiring people to put locking mechanisms and safes on their weapons, like the most pragmatic part of me says, there's some money to make there. Can we get, can we get some, like, some of those manufacturers lobbying, some of those people involved in it? Because there's some real money to make if we start requiring everybody to safely secure their guns. Just saying. Well, that's true. There is an insurance component that I think could be very healthy for gun ownership. And again, that is not to say that I don't want you to have it. I think most of the people who have guns and who are so impassioned about defending their right to have guns already do so many of these things um, voluntarily in order to, to keep the weapon respected. They know what kind of power they're wielding and they take care of it. And so I think that's part of what gets missed in this conversation. There is this idea that any legislative act would burden people who are who just have weapons because they like to go target shooting or because they want to make sure they're safe if somebody breaks into their house. Now, we can talk about whether you're actually safer if somebody breaks into your house, but that's another day. Most of those people are already doing the kinds of things that we think we should ask everyone to do. We also got a list of suggestions from Daniel that I thought were really um, interesting and contribute to some of the ways we can think through beginning to address this. He talked about enforcement and strengthening of firearm restrictions for domestic violence um, perpetrators. And I think that's probably a big part of the push for reclaiming weapons that's going on in Congress right now. Gun violence restraining or protective orders. I think this is something we should talk about more. The idea that um, 
the t- the, and it's exactly what Congress is talking about, the way to temporarily remove firearms from those who pose a danger to themselves or others. I, I want to see if there's any statistics, because some, some states have these. I think it would be interesting to look at the data behind some of the states that have these and some of the states that don't. Um, restricting the purchase of semi-automatic centerfire handguns and rifles till the age of 25, uniformed army, army police slash security in schools, and restrictions on bump stocks. And then he said he's open but unsure about the success of expanded background checks and limiting magazine capacities. I mean, I just – we've gotten so many messages from gun owners who really are trying to think through the best way to handle this. And I just – I appreciate it. We don't always agree on the solution, but until we can all sort of start thinking about this together, I'm not sure how much further we're going to get. On the topic of having uniformed armed police or security in schools, not teachers, that's another thing that I think, okay, let's do it. If that saves anybody, let's do it. It's not always going to work. I don't think um, it's a deterrent. I think we, I think we're making a big mistake and, and a, and a real logical contradiction when people say, well, the people who come in and do mass shootings are crazy, but they will be deterred if they know there's a threat of return fire. Those two things don't go together. So here's the thing. I don't really think I believe in deterrence. I don't think like, I do either. At all. Now, I believe in prevention. I do not believe in deterrence. Like, that's the same argument people use for capital the punishment. Death penalty. And mm-hmm. it's not true at all. Not true at all. So I just, yeah, I don't think it, people commit crime because they're in a moment in which they're not thinking through the consequences of their actions. Deterrence requires you to think through the consequences of your actions. So, yeah, I don't buy it. Prevention I'm all about. If you want to talk about how to prevent um, gun violence, and that's the thing. We can talk about prevention in the short term. We can talk about preventing individuals who do not need to have access to guns from getting guns. And then we can talk about prevention in the long term, which is trying to prevent individuals from getting to that point where they want a weapon in the first place. Right. How can we make people less angry, less lonely, less scarred, mm-hmm. less broken? Mm-hmm. But if if part of that short term minimization of casualty requires an, an armed guard in school, someone who is trained, someone who is a warrior to go back to Liz's message, I think that's fine. We just got an email that that's going to happen in all of the schools in my county. And the, the chief of police here has been very open about the sacrifice that's going to require from our police officers because it's going to be a very big stretch on resources. I think Mm. there's a way to do this well and a way to do it poorly. Um, If this could be folded in with a lot of the conversation happening in law enforcement about community policing, about ways to make sure that police and citizens trust each other and know each other, I think there could be good good externalities beyond minimizing casualties to having uh, police officers in schools. So, again, I think that's an area that we can find common ground on. I'm just overall encouraged by the momentum um, surrounding this conversation. And I believe at this point, based on what I've seen with Me Me Too, um, that it's going to continue. I think that we are We are in a new day of political conversations in this country, and I'm encouraged by it. I think so, too. I was talking to someone over the weekend who who is older and said, I just worry that young people don't care that they want to go to work and have a nice life for themselves and their families, but they're not socially committed. And I said, well, I think that's changing rapidly. And I think that you can see signs everywhere that we do care a lot. And in fact... We care in a different way than people have cared before, and we have different forums to express our care. 
And I think a lot of us are starting to say, pause the corporate rat race. Yeah. I need to talk about what's most important in life to me and what kind of community I want to be part of. And I want to be part of it. And so I, I, I think there, there are lots of reasons to be hopeful right now. Next up, we're going to talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. Beth, what are you thinking about outside of politics? This is kind of nerdy, as I have been for this entire episode, I suppose, and maybe always am. But I read this article in The Atlantic about a book by archaeologist Alexander Langlands coming out. It is called Craft, C-R-A-E-F-T. And I haven't read the book yet. I'm interested in it. What interested me most about the article, though, is how it characterized so many reviews of this book as beginning with sort of a preemptive, don't worry, I'm not talking about arts and crafts. I'm not talking about doilies and knitting and uh, drawing and things like that. As though those things are not to be taken seriously. And it just made me think about how traditionally feminine activities are devalued and also about how idle, you know, Activity that is perceived as non-productive mm-hmm. is devalued. And I think that the creative expression through craft, whether it is craft beer or craft with yarn or whatever, is so important to us. It kind of relates to what we were just talking about, that we we shouldn't spend our entire existence focused on how much money can I make? How hard can I work? How can I maximize the productivity of every second of my day? I feel like our brains are being used in this really minimal way right now because we're so focused on productivity. And I liked thinking about craft as a word as being something that we really embrace and value and say, yeah, we, we need this part of ourselves. So I have so many thoughts on this. Okay. First of all, I think this is what I see in my own community, and this really bothers me, that art generally, and I would include craft, is only valued when it's a profession that makes money. And that if you're not making money off of it and you just do something in your spare time, people – because I have I come from a very – Paducah is a very artistic community. We um, we focus on the arts. We are a UNESCO arts and craft city, all these things. And people will say, well, I'm not I'm not an artist. What does that mean? Because somebody doesn't pay you for it? Is that the only value we can impart is if you make money off of it? That's the only time you're artistic is if somebody pays you for it? Why? Why do we do that? So I think there's this very interesting contrast between wanting to put arts and crafts in only valuing them through the lens of commerce, which really bothers me. Then there is absolutely like the feminization of this. So Paducah is also the quilt capital of the world. Um, quilting is an amazing art form, but it's like sewing and quilting is feminine and not cool and not artistic and not valued. But once you become a designer and a seamstress or like once it's, it reaches a certain level when, ooh, surprise, surprise, suddenly all the people are men in charge. Same with like cooking. Uh, now I don't think you see less in this, less and less of this in the age of food network, but like for so long, like cooks was, cooks were, 
devalued. Chefs were fancy and chefs were men. And it's like you see this all the time that when it's something that women do and then once it becomes valuable, then once it reaches a certain level, then the men get in charge and they're paid more for something that women have been doing for a very long time, which I think is so frustrating. And I do. I think we just need to release ourselves from all of that, not just because of the gendered aspect or the commerce angle, just because I think we need it. I've really been recently trying to spend some time, um, as I've mentioned before, working on my my clenching and my grinding of my teeth. So I just think I've been trying to just have real downtime. I'm really bad about everything being productive. Like, so I spend a lot of my downtime reading and that feeds this like idea of like, I'm checking books off my list. I'm reading. That's like, I'm, 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 you know, tallying up marks or I'll sit down to watch something and I'll feel like I need to knit because I knit presents for people. So I'm like doing something while I'm watching TV. And I really just try to be like, just do something to do it and enjoy it. So I put together a little art cart with all our markers and everything. I've been really enjoying it. So I just color, just a color. There's no purpose. Even in my head, I'll get, I'm like, oh, I should send this to somebody as a thank you note. I'm like, stop it. Just stop it. Just do it to enjoy it. I've been trying to do like crossword puzzles, just things that are just, like I said, like everyday crafting, just crafting to craft, just to be in the moment and enjoy the experience of creating something and nothing more. It's hard though, man. It's hard to be idle. I have two things that I want to say about my sister in connection with this conversation. My sister is 12 years younger than I am and in many ways wiser than I am. So she has learned to quilt because there was our family has a lot of quilters in it, but the younger generation doesn't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. And so Kimberly, my sister, learned how to quilt and she just made for her mother-in-law, who is Irish, a quilt um, that has all kind of a green fabrics in it. It's, it's beautiful. And all of those fabrics came from our great aunt. So this quilt is sort of the actual stitching together of two families, which I think is just an amazing idea and an amazing preservation of history and recognition of different cultures coming together. And so I'm so proud of her. And I just applaud that she has learned this craft and has learned this thing. It's such a gift to quilting um, is amazing to lots of people. The other thing I want to say about her is that for Christmas, she bought me a Buddha board which is like a tiny easel that has this um, canvas on it. And all you do is paint on it with water and it evaporates as you are working. And so it's this very clear recognition that you are doing it just to do it, not to produce something. Mm -hmm. It is not going to be shared in any way because it's going to disappear before you're even finished. And I really like it. It really speaks to me. Yeah, I just think we need to find space for that in our lives, to be idle, to do something temporary, to not be producing. I had a conversation with um, my friends Mike and Smith last night. We were talking about electricity. Like, we were just talking about the, sort of the impact. We were having some very, like, black mirror conversations. And we were talking about the impact of industrialization and the Internet. And I said, I think it goes back to even, like, electricity. Once we got light, we didn't have to, like, just slow down and be idle because there was a limit to how much work we could do because the sun was down. Electricity gave us the power to do, to be, to produce way beyond sort of the natural confines of our day. And I don't wonder if we think through that enough, if we are we are cautious enough of, of how that can affect us, you know? 
Yeah. And this is definitely kind of getting to some of the things that we're talking about on the nuanced life. So if you enjoy this discussion, pop over there and continue it with us. We will be back with you here on Friday for another episode on the nuanced life on Wednesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com forward slash Pantsuit Politics or rate and review the podcast in the Apple Podcast Player. Thank you to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, George, and Sabrina. You can find us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politics or Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. You can also hear his work and get more nuance by checking out our podcast on family, relationships, and values, The Nuanced Life.